Thank you, Tanner, for reading our scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Specifically, we want to look at the first 13 verses of chapter 10. As we think about some of the obstacles that we face to our faith. I want to begin, before we look at our lesson, to just uh, express appreciation to each and every person who is present tonight. I know that it is a holiday weekend. We have a lot of people that are on the road, some going, some coming. And so we continue to remember them in our prayers. Tomorrow we begin our Vacation Bible School. It will run through Thursday evening. And we want to encourage everyone to be a part of that. We want to invite our friends, our neighbors to come and to take part in this great avenue that we have to learn more about the Lord. Tonight as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to begin by talking about the threat of temptation. The song we, we sang a moment ago, Yield Not to Temptation. All of us make choices in life. Sometimes we make good choices. Sometimes, unfortunately, we make poor choices. There is, there is always the tendency in the lives of some to yield. And so tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to talk for a minute or two about some of the obstacles that we face to our faith. One other thing I do want to make mention of before we get started tonight. I know this has been a very busy summer for our young folks. Jared's been gone probably more than he's been home. And I want our young folks to know how proud we are of them. And we're grateful for their efforts and the great example that they set, not only to, not only to their friends and their neighbors and their classmates, but to those of us who are older. The future of the church rests in their hands. And I'm very grateful for the leadership that they have and for their spiritual growth. And I really believe that when our young folks aren't here, it leaves a great void. And that was felt last week. And so we're glad you're home safe and sound. We hope that last week was a great week and we look forward to a lot of great things coming forward in the future as a result of your efforts. Tonight I want to begin by looking at verses 11 through 13 in our text. Listen again to what Paul said. All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. If you drop back, and look at the first part of verse 6. Paul said, again, referencing the Israelite people. 
These things became our examples. As you well know, God delivered ancient Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He promised or prophesied to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his descendants would sojourn in a strange land for some 400 years. Afterward, he said, they will come out. God fulfilled that promise. He delivered the children of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery. And God said to Moses in chapter 19, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. God brought the children of Israel out of bondage. He sustained them, cared for them, and blessed them greatly. And yet time and again, in the history of Israel, they turned their back on him. They succumbed to temptation. And what Paul is saying here is that as children of God today, we face a multitude of trials and temptations in life. Sometimes individuals have the mentality that they will never succumb to a certain temptation. And so Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." He furthermore points out that temptation is common to all people. Temptation is no respecter of persons. And so the question is, will we rise above temptation or succumb? A second question, will we learn from the past? Someone has, has observed in days gone by that those who fail to learn history are destined to repeat it. There's another saying that I have come to appreciate in days gone by. And the statement is, if there is anything that we have learned from history, it is that we have not learned from history. When you think about that and allow it to resonate in your mind, you'll see it's true. There are, there are many things that have occurred in days gone by. We can look back and see clearly the pitfalls of our predecessors. And yet we turn around and sometimes do the very same things. So what Paul is saying is that as children of God, we need to be on guard. And the reason is because the devil is doing everything within his power to destroy our faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. The devil has a lot of tactics, a lot of schemes that he employs to lead us away from Almighty God. I would grant that the devil is operating in the world in which we live and he uses human instruments to carry out his will. 
We have to understand that the devil is not only lurking in the world and operating in the hearts and lives of those who are in the world, but his intent is to destroy those of us who belong to the body of Christ. You look at the church at Corinth, and, those, and though those people had obeyed the gospel, been baptized into Christ, sanctified in Christ, identified as saints, they had a lot of problems. So Paul sought to encourage them. James said in the long ago, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In James chapter 4, verse 7. The question is not, can we resist and overcome temptation? The question is, will we? As I think about life and the choices that we make in this life, the choices before us, right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error, each and every one of us, all of us, must decide where we're going to stand. What are we going to do? What road will we take? You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 presented the two roads of life? The straight and narrow path that ultimately leads to life. The broad road, the wide gate that he said leads to destruction. And Jesus said to those who were assembled on that day, many are there that enter in thereat. There are a lot of folks that are happy to walk that broad road to destruction. And sadly, sometimes members of the body of Christ make very poor choices. I understand how those of us that belong to the body of Christ can succumb in times of weakness to temptation. I understand that sometimes we can get so caught up in a situation or circumstance that we yield and engage in sin. But we need to understand this. God wants us to rise above temptation and sin. James said, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. And lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so James said in verse 16 of chapter 1, Therefore, do not be deceived or do not err, my beloved brethren. So again, as we travel the road of life, and sometimes as we yield to temptation, and that temptation leads to sin, what we have to do is step back, recognize our faults, repent, ask God to forgive us and move forward. That's the biblical way. John said in 1 John chapter 1, if we say 
that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 2, John would say, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. That's the divine ideal. That we as God's people rise above sin. But he said, If any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So yes, sometimes we do succumb. Sometimes we give in and engage in what the Bible identifies as the transgression of the law. The remedy again, turn to God. Because you see in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, John said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's in light of those passages of scripture and the choices before us that we think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul here goes all the way back to the Israelite nation and the fact that God had delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. In chapter 3, God called on a man by the name of Moses to lead forth his people out of slavery. And God said to Moses, I've seen their tears. God was well aware of their plight. And God said he had come down to deliver them. And that's exactly what he did. And so in verse 1, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But now look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In order for us to appreciate what Paul is saying here, I think we need to go back and look at Numbers chapter 14 for a moment. If you go back and look at Numbers chapters 13 and 14, the account given has to do with the sending out of 12 spies to survey the promised land, a land that God had said flowed with milk and honey. It was a bountiful land and God had promised to give them this, this land. Not only did God promise to give them the land, but he fulfilled that promise. But nonetheless, if you look at chapter 13, the text tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Twelve spies were dispatched to survey the land. Verse 
21 says, they went up and spied out the land. And then they returned after 40 days. Verse 28, or rather verse 25. And the text says, in verse 26, they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron. And all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Now look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Thank God for men like Caleb and Joshua who believed that God would fulfill his promise, that he had the, the ability, the power to bring them into the promised land. But note if you would in verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. As a result of what these ten spies said, the children of Israel failed to believe God. They trusted the words of these ten spies over the report given initially by Caleb. And so in chapter 14, verse 1, if you make the transition, listen, if you would, to what is said. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. And then it's almost incredulous to me what they'll now say. Look at verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to the land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Can you imagine that? Can you believe that the very people that had cried out, that were under the oppression of Pharaoh, as a matter of fact, Moses writes in chapter 1, there arose a new king in Egypt that knew not Joseph. And what he was really saying was, a king of Pharaoh arose in Egypt that did not know the God of Joseph. Joseph had had been a light for God in a pagan land. And it was under, really, 
under the oversight of Joseph and the providential care of God that Israel was allowed to settle in the land of Goshen and there they became a mighty nation of people. Some two million or so people came out of bondage. And now they want to return? Look at verse 4. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. I can just imagine Moses thinking, have you people lost your mind? Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua and Caleb, those men who spied out the land and gave a favorable report, were said to have torn their clothes. They were horrified at what was going on. So again, they try to encourage, inspire these people. They said, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now listen to him in verse 8. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. God was with Israel. He was with them when they crossed the Red Sea. He would be with them as they entered the promised land if only they believed that God would fulfill his word. And so Moses records these words in verse 10. The congregation said to stone them with stones. And then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, you go back and you look at the book of Exodus and you think about the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage and God performed ten miracles before Pharaoh and the people in Egypt. Each and every miracle directed at one of the pagan deities of Egypt, culminating with the death of the firstborn. And thus, the children of Israel had seen all these things. And so, in verse 12, here's what God said. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than you. I want you to note that statement made in verse 12. I will disinherit them. There are a lot of people in the world today that have the idea that once saved, always saved. It wasn't true under those who lived. In the Mosaic Dispensation, it is not true today. God said, I will disinherit them. Now, if you go back and you look at our lesson text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. There were a lot of folks that didn't make it to the promised land. And I think what the Apostle Paul is saying to those of us who live today 
He was saying this to those who belong to the church at Corinth and to people of every age. If we do not rise above temptation and strive to the best of our ability to live a faithful, godly life in Christ Jesus, we will not make the promised land. Bottom line, we won't go to heaven. Just because somebody has been baptized into Christ does not mean that is a one-way ticket to heaven. I understand the importance of being baptized into Christ. We have to be baptized into Jesus Christ so that our sins might be washed away. But there's a lot more involved in being baptized, or rather there's a lot more involved than just being baptized. We come to Jesus Christ believing that he is God's only begotten son. We willingly repent of every sin, as Jesus said in Luke 13, 3. We confess with our mouth that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And then we're immersed in water so that all sin might be washed away. The people in Corinth, many of those people had done that. Some of those people had come out of idolatry. Some had come out of immorality. Some had come out of, as we would say, heathen backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, to become children of God. And so, what Paul was saying is, you've got to dig in and fight the good fight of faith. As we live the Christian life, we have to understand, the devil is doing everything within his power to destroy our faith. And Paul is going to isolate some problems associated with the children of Israel. Problems that destroyed them. And what he's saying is, if we're not careful, these very same problems can become a thorn in our side and cause us to lose our eternal soul. I don't know of anybody that doesn't want to go to heaven. We all want to go to heaven. But Jesus said, be faithful until death. That is, even in the face of death. The promise being the crown of life. And so unless we're willing to walk that straight and narrow road and rise above temptation, understanding that sometimes, yes, we do succumb. But what we're saying is we're not going back to a life of habitual sin. We're not going back into the sinning business. The first problem that Paul identifies is the problem of idolatry. Listen, if you would, to what is said, beginning in verse 6. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In the Old Testament, God was very clear when it came to idolatry. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, didn't he? Moses received those commandments on the mountaintop, written as recorded in chapter 32 
by the finger of God, by the hand of God. Here's what God said in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Not only were they not to have other gods before them, but God said, you shall not make any carved image, nor any likeness of things in heaven, of things on earth, or those things that are in the waters under the earth. He said, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. In Exodus chapter 32, let me just ask you to turn back to chapter 32 for a minute. Because you see in chapter 32, we have the record of the golden calf. And the text tells us that the children of Israel began to question, what happened to Moses? Here's the record. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. I suspect that that was a lot of gold. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded, a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. They rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul here is reminding the people in Corinth of this very account. Lest we think that idolatry is a problem confined to those people that lived in the distant ages, we better think again. Did you know that John in 1 John chapter 5 at verse 20 said, Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. What is an idol? Typically we think about that which has been graven by the hands of men. Whether it take the form of wood, metal, steel, whatever. Idolatry takes many forms and many shapes. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul would say that covetousness is idolatry. That is that inordinate desire for that which is forbidden. I want to just think for a minute or two about the golden calf problem that we have today. When I was a, when I was a young fellow growing up in Chattanooga, I don't recall hearing much about other religions, quote unquote. And by that I mean religions other than Judaism or Christianity. But a lot has changed. We're living in a day and age when there are a lot of folks that are engaged in pagan idolatry. 
Paul dealt with the problem of idolatry. He dealt with it in Lystra, where they tried to deify him and Barnabas. He dealt with it in the city of Athens. The Bible says in chapter 17, verse 16, that the whole city was given over to idolatry. Paul's spirit was stirred within him when he saw that. So Paul sought to correct those who put their faith and trust in a pagan deity, a pagan idol. I say that to simply point out that the other day, Miss Virginia gave me an excerpt from the Memphis Commercial Appeal, June the 28th, 2014. The question was asked, I still have the article, but the question was asked, what is the second largest religion in the South? You know what the answer was? Islam. There were two states that were accepted, Tennessee and South Carolina. I had no idea that we are living in what we would call the Bible Belt. I had no idea that Islam has grown as much as it has. Certainly not to the extent that it would be number two in terms of religion. So we're living in a day and time when there are a lot of folks that are buying in to Eastern religions, Buddha, etc. Many are becoming followers of Muhammad. We have to understand there's only one God and Father, as Paul said. But the problem of idolatry is not merely confined to religions like Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. But we are confronted with idolatry in the form of materialism and money and power and fame. Here's what Jesus said in the long ago. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and clothing, we shall therewith be content. But they that are minded to be rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lust, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some men, having reached after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and been led astray from the faith. You see, you don't have to bow down to Buddha to be an, an idolater. If you love money more than any and everything, then you've got a problem with greed or covetousness, which is, as Paul said, idolatry. There are a lot of people in our world today, they don't understand that anything that comes between them and Jehovah God is idolatry. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. 
I want to ask you a question. If I would rather sit home on Sunday night rather than coming to worship services, do I have a spiritual problem? If I would rather sit home on Wednesday night rather than coming to Bible study, do I have a spiritual problem? Now you see, we talk about putting God first. Sounds good in theory, doesn't it? Let me tell you where the rub is. The rub is in the practice. There are a lot of folks that chose not to come back to our services tonight. Why? Some had to work. Understand that. Some sick. Understand that too. Some came, came to the conclusion, you know what? I'd rather do something else. That's a problem. They don't know it's a problem, but it's a problem. Anything that comes between us and our relationship to God can destroy our faith. We've got to be faithful. We've got to walk that straight and narrow road, come what may. I didn't get finished with our lesson last week, and I'm not going to get finished tonight. Well, that's okay. I had a lot of introductory material that I wanted to go through because I want us to understand we are in a battle. And the battle is for our soul. What's most important is not your house, not your car, not your job. What's most important is your soul. And what Jesus said, if you lose your soul, you've lost everything. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, think about your soul. Realize that Jesus paid the price for your sins. He came, lived, died, shed his blood on Calvary's cross so that you might have everlasting life. Why not do what they did on Pentecost Day? Peter said, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, the promise being you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, verse 38. And then be faithful. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, why not come home? Why not resolve right now to put God first in your life? We'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.